Part three of a narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rawlinson by Mary Rawlinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Scott Superna. A narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rawlinson by Mary Rawlinson. The nineteenth remove. They say when we went out, that we must travel to Wachusett this day. But a bitter weary day I had of it, traveling now three days together, without resting any day between. At last, after many weary steps, I saw Wachusett Hills, but many miles off. Then we came to a great swamp, through which we traveled up to the knees in mud and water, which was heavy going to one tired before. Being almost spent, I thought I should have sunk down at last, and never got out. But I may say, as in Psalm ninety-four, eighteen, when my foot slipped, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. Going along, having indeed my life, but little spirit, Philip, who was in the company, came up and took me by the hand, and said, Two weeks more, and you shall be mistress again. I asked him if he spake true. He answered, Yes, and quickly, you shall come to your master again, who had been gone from us three weeks. After many weary steps we came to Achusett, where he was, and glad I was to see him. He asked me, when I washed me. I told him not this month. Then he fetched me some water himself, and bid me wash, and gave me the glass to see how I looked, and bid his squaw give me something to eat. So she gave me a mass of beans and meat, and a little ground nut cake. I was wonderfully revived with this favor showed me. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Psalm 106, 46. My master had three squaws, living sometimes with one and sometimes with another one. This old squaw, at those wigwams, I was. And with whom my master had been those three weeks, another was Weedamu, with whom I had lived and served all this while. A severe and proud dame she was, bestowing every day in dressing herself neat as much time as any of the gentry of the land, powdering her hair and painting her face, going with necklaces, with jewels in her ears and bracelets upon her hands. When she had dressed herself, her work was to make girdles of wampum and beads. The third squaw was a younger one, by whom he had two papooses. By the time I was refreshed by the old squaw, with whom my master was, Weedamu's maid, came to call me home, at which I fell a-weeping. Then the old squaw told me, to encourage me, that if I wanted victuals I should come to her, and that I should lie there in her wigwam. Then I went with the maid, and quickly came again and lodged there. The squaw laid a mat under me, and a good rug over me. The first time I had any such kindness showed me, I understood that Weedamu thought that if she should let me go and serve with the old squaw, she should be in danger to lose not only my service but the redemption pay also and i was not a little glad to hear this being by it raised in my hopes that in god's due time there would be an end of this sorrowful hour then came an indian and asked me to knit him three pair of stockings for which i had a hat and a silk handkerchief then another asked me to make her a shift for which she gave me an apron then came tom and peter with the second letter from the consul about the captives 
though they were indians i got them by the hand and burst out into tears my heart was so full that i could not speak to them but recovering myself i asked them how my husband did and all my friends and acquaintance they said they are all but very well melancholy they brought me two biscuits and a pound of tobacco the tobacco i quickly gave away when it was all gone one asked me to give him a pipe of tobacco i told him it was all gone then he began to rant and threaten i told him when my husband came i would give him some hang him rogue he says i will knock out his brains if he comes here and then again in the same breath they would say that if there should come an hundred without guns they would do them no hurt so unstable and like madmen they were so that fearing the worst i durst not send to my husband though there were some thoughts of his coming to redeem and fetch me not knowing what might follow for there was little more trust to them than to the master they served when the letter was come the sagamores met with the consult about the captives and called me to them to inquire how much my husband would give to redeem me when i came i sat down amongst them as i was wont to do as their manner is when they bade me stand up and said they were the general court they bid me speak what i thought he would give now knowing that all we had was destroyed by the indians i was in a great strait i thought if i should speak of but a little it would be slighted and hinder the matter if a great sum i knew not where it would be procured yet at a venture i said twenty pounds yet desired them to take less but they would not hear of that but sent the message to boston for that twenty pounds i should be redeemed it was a praying indian that wrote their letter for them there was another praying indian who told me that he had a brother that would not eat horse his conscience was so tender and scrupulous though as large as hell for the destruction of poor christians then he said he read that scripture to him there was a famine in samaria and behold they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver second kings six twenty five he expounded this place to his brother and showed him that it was lawful to eat that in a famine which is not at another time and now he says he will eat horse with any indian of them all there was another praying indian who when he had done all the mischief that he could betrayed his own father into the english hands thereby to purchase his own life another praying indian was at sudbury fight though as he deserved he was afterward hanged for it there was another praying indian so wicked and cruel as to wear a string about his neck strung with christian's fingers another praying indian when they went to sudbury fight went with him and his squaw also with him with her papoose at her back before they went to that fight they got a company together to powwow the manner was as followeth there was one that kneeled upon a deerskin, with the company round him in a ring who kneeled, and striking upon the ground with their hands, and with sticks, and muttering or humming with their mouths. Besides him, who kneeled in the ring, there also stood one with a gun in his hand. Then he on the deerskin made a speech, and all manifested assent to him, and so they did many times together. Then they bade him with the gun go out of the ring, which he did but when he was out they called him in again but he seemed to make a stand then they called the more earnestly till he returned again 
then they all sang then gave him two guns in either hand one and so he on the deerskin began again and at the end of every sentence in his speaking they all assented humming or muttering with their mouths and striking upon the ground with their hands then they bade him with the two guns go out of the ring again which he did a little way then they called him in again but he made a stand so they called him with greater earnestness but he stood reeling and wavering as if he knew not whether he should stand or fall or which way to go then they calmed him with exceeding great vehemency all of them one and another after a little while he turned in staggering as he went with his arms stretched out in either hand a gun as soon as he came in they all sang and rejoiced exceedingly a while and then he upon the deerskin made another speech unto which they all assented in a rejoicing manner and if they ended their business and forthwith went to sudbury fight to my thinking they went without any scruple but that they should prosper and gain the victory and they went out not so rejoicing but they came home with as great a victory for they said they had killed two captains and almost a hundred men one englishman they brought along with them and he said it was too true for they had made sad work at sudbury as indeed it proved yet they came home without that rejoicing and triumphing over their victory which they were wont to show at other times but rather like dogs as they say which have lost their own ears yet i could not perceive that it was for their own loss of men they said they had not lost above five or six and i missed none except in one wigwam when they went they acted as if the devil had told them that they should gain the victory and now they act as if the devil had told them they should have a fall whether it were so or no i cannot tell but so it proved for quickly they began to fall and so held on that summer till they came to utter ruin they came home on a sabbath day and the pawa that kneeled upon the deerskin came home i may say without abuse as black as the devil when my master came home he came to me and bid me make a shirt for his papoose of a holland lace pillow bear about that time there came an indian to me and bid me come to his wigwam at night and he would give me some pork and ground nuts which i did and as i was eating another indian said to me he seems to be your good friend but he killed two englishmen at sudbury and there lie their clothes behind you i looked behind me and there i saw bloody clothes with bullet holes in them yet the lord suffered not this wretch to do me any hurt yet instead of that he many times refreshed me five or six times did he and his squaw refreshed my feeble carcass if i went to their wigwam at any time they would always give me something and yet they were strangers that i never saw before another squaw gave me a piece of fresh pork and a little salt with it and lent me her frying-pan to fry it in and i cannot but remember what a sweet pleasant and delightful relish that bit had to me to this day so little do we prize common mercies when we have them to the full the twentieth remove it was their usual manner to remove when they had done any mischief lest they should be found out and so they did at this time we went about three or four miles and there they built a great wigwam big enough to hold a hundred indians which they did in preparation to a great day of dancing 
They would say now amongst themselves that the governor would be so angry for his loss at Sudbury that he would send no more about the captives, which made me grieve and tremble, my sister being not far from the place where we now were, and heard that I was here, desired her master to let her come and see me, and he was willing to do it, and would go with her. But she being ready before him, told him she would go before, and was come within a mile or two of the place. Then he overtook her, and began to rant as if he had been mad, and made her go back again into the rain, so that I never saw her till I saw her in Charlestown. But the Lord requited many of their ill-doings, for this Indian, her master, was hanged afterwards at Boston. The Indians now began to come from all quarters against their merry dancing day. Among some of them came one good wife Kettle. I told her my heart was so heavy that it was ready to break. So is mine too, said she. But yet said, I hope we shall hear some good news shortly. I could hear how earnestly my sister desired to see me, and as I earnestly desired to see her, and yet neither of us could get an opportunity. My daughter was also now about a mile off, and I had not seen her in nine or ten weeks. As I had not seen my sister since our first taking, I earnestly desired them to let me go see them. Yea, I entreated, begged, and persuaded them, but to let me see my daughter, and yet so hard-hearted were they, that they would not suffer it. They made use of their tyrannical power whilst they had it, but through the Lord's wonderful mercy their time was now but short. On a Sabbath day, the sun being about an hour high in the afternoon, came Mr. John Hoare, the consul permitting him and his own forward spirit inclining him, together with the two forementioned Indians, Tom and Peter, with their third letter from the council. When they came near, I was abroad. Though I saw them not, they presently called me in, and bade me sit down and not stir. Then they catched up their guns, and away they ran, as if an enemy had been at hand, and the guns went off apace. I manifested some great trouble, and they asked me what was the matter. I told them I thought they had killed the Englishman, for they had in the meantime informed me that an Englishman was come. They said no, they shot over his horse, and under and before his horse, and they pushed him this way and that way, at their pleasure, showing what they could do. Then they let them come to their wigwams. I begged of them to let me see the Englishman, but they would not. But there was I fain to sit their pleasure. When they had talked their full with him, they suffered me to go to him. We asked each other of our welfare, and how my husband did, and all my friends. He told me they were all well, and would be glad to see me. Amongst other things which my husband sent me, there came a pound of tobacco, which I sold for nine shillings in money, for many of the Indians for want of tobacco, smoked hemlock, and ground ivy. It was a great mistake in any who thought I sent for tobacco, for through the favor of God that desire was overcome. I now asked them whether I should go home with Mr. Hoare. They answered no. One and another of them, and it being night, we laid down with that answer. In the morning Mr. Hoare invited the Sagamores to dinner, but when we went to get it ready we found that they had stolen the greatest part of the provision Mr. Hoare had brought out of his bags in the night. And we may see the wonderful power of God in that one passage, in that when there was such a great number of the Indians together, and so greedy of a little good food, and no English there but Mr. Hoare and myself, 
that they did not knock us in the head, and take what we had, there being not only some provision, but also trading cloth, a part of the twenty pounds agreed upon. But instead of doing us any mischief, they seemed to be ashamed of the fact, and said, it were the same matchet Indian that did it. Oh, that we could believe that there is nothing too hard for God. God showed his power over the heathen in this, as he did over the hungry lions when Daniel was cast into the den. Mr. Hoare called them betime to dinner, but they ate very little, they being so busy in dressing themselves and getting ready for their dance, which was carried on by eight of them, four men and four squaws. My master and mistress being two, he was dressed in his holland shirt, with great laces sewed at the tail of it. He had his silver buttons, his white stockings, his garters were hung round with shillings, and he had girdles of wampum upon his head and shoulders. She had a kirsey coat, and covered with girdles of wampum from the loins upward. Her arms from her elbows to her hands were covered with bracelets. There were handfuls of necklaces about her neck, and several sorts of jewels in her ears. She had fine red stockings and white shoes. Her hair powdered and face painted red. That was always before black. And all the dancers were after the same manner. There were two others singing and knocking on a kettle for their music. They kept hopping up and down, one after another, with a kettle of water in the midst, standing warm upon some embers, to drink of when they were dry. They held on till it was almost night, throwing out wampum to the standers by. At night I asked them again if I should go home. They all as one said no, except my husband would come for me. When we were laying down, my master went out of the wigwam, and by and by sent in an Indian called James the Printer, who told Mr. Hoare that my master would let me go home to-morrow, if he would let him have one pint of liquors. Then Mr. Hoare called his own Indians, Tom and Peter, and abid them to go and see whether he would promise it before them three, and if he would, he should have it, which he did, and he had it. Then Philip, smelling the business, called me to him, and asked me what I would give him to tell me some good news, and speak of a good word for me. I told him I could not tell what to give him. I would give him anything I had, and asked him what he would have. He said two coats and twenty shillings in money, and half a bushel of seed-corn, and some tobacco. I thanked him for his love, but I knew the good news as well as the crafty fox. My master, after he had had his drink, quickly came ranting into the wigwam again, and called for Mr. Hoare, drinking to him and saying he was a good man, and then he would say, Hang him, rogue! Being almost drunk, he would drink to him, and yet presently say he should be hanged. Then he called for me. I trembled to hear him, yet I was fain to go to him, and he drank to me, showing no incivility. He was the first Indian I saw drunk all the while that I was amongst them. At last his squaw ran out, and he after her, round the wigwam, with his money jingling at his knees. But she escaped him. But having an old squaw, he ran to her, and so through the Lord's mercy. We were no more troubled that night, yet I had not a comfortable night's rest, for I think I can say I did not sleep for three nights together. The night before, the letter came from the consul. I could not rest. I was so full of fears and troubles. God, many times, leaving us most in the dark. When deliverance is nearest, ye at this time I could not rest night nor day. The next night I was overjoyed, Mr. Hoare being come, 
and that with such good tidings, the third night I was even swallowed up with the thoughts of things, that I ever should go home again, and that I must go, leaving my children behind me in the wilderness, so that sleep was now almost departed from mine eyes. On Tuesday morning they called their general court, as they call it, to consult and determine whether I should go home or no, and they all as one man did seemingly consent to it, that I should go home except Philip, who would not come among them. But before I go any further, I would take leave to mention a few remarkable passages of providence, that which I took special notice of in my afflicted time. 1. Of the fair opportunity lost in the long march, little after the fortnight, when our English army was so numerous and in pursuit of the enemy, and so near as to take several and destroy them, and the enemy in such distress for food that our men might track them by their rooting in the earth for ground nuts, whilst they were flying for their lives, I say that then our army should want provision and be forced to leave their pursuit and return homeward, and the very next week the enemy came upon our town, like bears bereft of their whelps, or so many ravenous wolves rending us and our lambs to death. But what shall I say? God seemed to leave his people to themselves, and order all things for his own holy ends. Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? They are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, therefore shall they go captive, with the first that go captive. It is the Lord's doing, and it should be marvelous in our eyes. Second, I cannot but remember how the Indians derided the slowness and dullness of the English army in its setting out. For after the desolations at Lancaster and Medfield, as I went along with them, they asked me when I thought the English army would come after them. I told them I could not tell. It may be they will come in May, said they. Thus did they scoff at us, as if the English would be a quarter of a year getting ready. Third, which also I have hinted before, when the English army with new supplies were sent forth to pursue after the enemy, and they understanding it, fled before them till they came to Banquay River, where they forthwith went over safely, that that river should be impassable to the English. I can but admire to see the wonderful providence of God in preserving the heathen for further affliction to our poor country. They could go in great numbers over, but the English must stop. God had an overruling hand in all those things. Fourth, it was thought, if their corn were cut down they would starve and die with hunger, but all their corn that could be found was destroyed, and they, driven from that little they had in store, into the woods in the midst of the winter, and yet how to admiration did the Lord preserve them for his holy ends, and the destruction of many still amongst the English, strangely did the Lord provide for them, that I did not see all the time I was among them one man, woman, or child, die with hunger though many times they would eat that that a hog or dog would hardly touch yet by that god strengthened them to be a scourge to his people the chief and commonest food was ground nuts they eat also nuts acorns artichokes lily roots ground beans and several other weeds and roots that i know not they would pick up old bones and cut them to pieces at the joints and if they were full of worms and maggots, they would scald them over a fire and make the vermin come out, and then boil them and drink up the liquor, and then beat the great ends of them in a mortar, and so eat them. They would eat a horse's guts and ears and all sorts of birds which they could catch, 
also bear venison beaver tortoise frogs squirrels dogs skunks rattlesnakes yea the very bark of trees besides all sorts of creatures and provision which they plundered from the english i can but stand in admiration to see the wonderful power of god in providing for such a vast number of our enemies in the wilderness where there was nothing to be seen but from hand to mouth many times in a morning the generality of them would eat up all they had and yet have some further supply against they wanted it is said oh that my people had hearkened to me and israel had walked in my ways i should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries psalm eighty one thirteen fourteen but now our perverse and evil carriages in the sight of the lord have so offended him that instead of turning his hand against them the lord feeds and nourishes them to be a scourge to the whole land fifth another thing that i would observe is the strange providence of god in turning things about when the indians was at the highest and the english at the lowest i was with the enemy eleven weeks and five days and not one week passed without the fury of the enemy and some desolation by fire and sword upon one place or another they mourned with their black faces for their own losses yet triumphed and rejoiced in their inhumane and many times devilish cruelty to the english they would boast much of their victory saying that in two hours time they had destroyed such a captain and his company at such a place and boast how many towns they had destroyed and then scoff and say they had done them a good turn to send them to heaven so soon again they would say this summer that they would knock all the rogues in the head or drive them into the sea or make them fly the country thinking surely egg like the bitterness of death is past now the heathen begins to think all is their own and the poor christians hopes to fail as to man and now their eyes are more to god and their hearts sigh heavenward and to say in good earnest help lord or we perish then the lord had brought his people to this that they saw no help in anything but himself then he takes the quarrel into his own hand and though they had made a pit in their own imaginations as deep as hell for the christians that summer yet the lord hurled themselves into it and the lord had not so many ways before to preserve them and now he hath as many to destroy them but to return again to my going home where we may see a remarkable change in providence at first they were all against it except my husband would come for me but afterwards they assented to it and seemed much to rejoice in it some asking me to send them some bread others some tobacco others shaking me by the hand offering me a hood and scarf to ride in not one moving hand or tongue against it thus hath the lord answered my poor desire and the many earnest requests of others put up unto god for me in my travels an indian came to me and told me if i were willing he and his squaw would run away and go home along with me i told him no i was not willing to run away but desired to wait god's time that i might go home quietly and without fear and now god hath granted me my desire oh the wonderful power of god that i have seen and the experience that i have had i have been in the midst of those roaring lions and savage bears that feared neither god nor man nor the devil by night and day alone and in company sleeping all sorts together and yet not one of them ever offered me the least abuse of unchastity to me in word or action 
though some are ready to say i speak it for my own credit but i speak it in the presence of god and to his glory god's power is as great now and as sufficient to save as when he preserved daniel in the lion's den or the three children in the fiery furnace i may well say as his psalm one o seven twelve o give thanks unto the lord for he is good for his mercy endureth forever let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, especially that I should come away in the midst of so many hundreds of enemies quietly and peaceably, and not a dog moving his tongue. So I took my leave of them, and in coming along my heart melted into tears more than all the while I was with them, and I was almost swallowed up with the thoughts that ever I should go home again. About the sun going down, Mr. Hoare and myself and the two Indians came to Lancaster, and a solemn sight it was to me. There had I lived many comfortable years amongst my relations and neighbors, and now not one Christian to be seen, nor one house left standing. We went on to a farmhouse that was yet standing, where we lay all night in a comfortable lodging we had, though nothing but straw to lie on. The Lord preserved us in safety that night and raised us up again in the morning, and carried us along, that before noon we came to Concord. Now was I full of joy, and yet without sorrow, joy to see such a lovely sight, so many Christians together, and some of them my neighbors. There I met with my brother and my brother-in-law, who asked me, if I knew where his wife was. Poor heart! He had helped to bury her, and knew it not. She being shot down by the house was partly burned so that those who were at boston at the desolation of the town and came back afterward and buried the dead did not know her yet i was not without sorrow to think how many were looking and longing and my own children amongst the rest to enjoy that deliverance that i had now received i did not know whether ever i should see them again being recruited with food and raiment we went to Boston that day, where I met with my dear husband, but the thoughts of our dear children, one being dead, and the other we could not tell where, abated our comfort each to other. I was not before so much hemmed in with the merciless and cruel heathen, but now as much as with pitiful, tender-hearted, and compassionate Christians, in that poor and distressed and beggarly condition I was received in. I was kindly entertained in several houses, so much love I received from several, some of whom I knew, and others who I knew not, that I am not capable to declare it. But the Lord knows them all by name. The Lord reward them sevenfold unto their bosoms of his spirituals, for their temporals. The twenty pounds, the price of my redemption, was raised by some Boston gentlemen, and Mr. Usher, whose bounty and religious charity I would not forget to make mention of. Then Mr. Thomas Shepherd of Charleston, received us into his house where we continued eleven weeks, and a father and a mother they were to us, and many more tender-hearted friends we met with in that place. We were now in the midst of love, yet not without much infrequent heaviness of heart for our poor children, and other relations who were still in affliction, the week following, after my coming in. The governor and the council sent forth to the Indians again, and that not without success, for they brought in my sister and good wife Kettle. Their not knowing where our children were was a sore trial to us still, and yet we were not without secret hopes that we should see them again. 
that which was dead lay heavier upon my spirit than those which were alive and amongst the heathen thinking how it suffered with its wounds and i was no way able to relieve it and how it was buried by the heathen in the wilderness from among all christians we were hurried up and down in our thoughts sometimes we should hear a report that they were gone this way and sometimes that and that they were come in in this place or that we kept inquiring and listening to hear concerning them but no certain news as yet about this time the council had offered a day of public thanksgiving though i thought i had still cause of mourning and being unsettled in our minds we thought we would ride toward the eastward to see if we could hear anything concerning our children and as we were riding along god is the wise disposer of all things between ipswich and rowley we met with mr william hubbard who told us that our son joseph was come to major waldron's and another with him which was my sister's son i asked him how he knew it he said the major himself told him so so along we went till we came to newbury and their minister being absent they desired my husband to preach the thanksgiving for them but he was not willing to stay there that night but would go over to salisbury to hear further and come in again in the morning which he did and preached there that day at night when he had done one came and told him that his daughter was come in at providence here was mercy on both hands now hath god fulfilled that precious scripture which was such a comfort to me in my distressed condition when my heart was ready to sink into the earth my children being gone i could not tell whither and my knees trembling under me and i was walking through the valley of the shadow of death then the lord brought and now has fulfilled that reviving word unto me thus saith the lord refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears for thy work shall be rewarded saith the lord and they shall come again from the land of the enemy now we were between them the one on the east and the other on the west our son being nearest we went to him first to the portsmouth where we met with him and met with the major also who told us he had done what he could but could not redeem him under seven pounds which the good people thereabouts were pleased to pay the lord reward the major and all the rest though unknown to me for their labor of love my sister's son was redeemed for four pounds which the council gave order for the payment of having now received one of our children we hastened toward the other going back through newbury my husband preached there on the sabbath day for which they rewarded him many fold on monday we came to charlestown where we had heard that the governor of rhode island had sent over for our daughter to take care of her but now within his jurisdiction which should not pass without our acknowledgments was she being nearer to rehoboth than rhode island mr newman went over and took care of her and brought her to his own house and the goodness of god was admirable to us in our low estate in that he raised up compassionate friends on every side to us and we had nothing to recompense any for their love the indians were now gone that way that it was apprehended dangerous to go to her but the carts which carried provisions to the english army being guarded brought her with them to dorchester where we received her safe blessed be the lord for it for great is his power and he can do whatsoever seemeth him good her coming in was after this manner she was travelling one day with the indians with her basket at her back the company of indians were got before her and gone out of sight 
all except one squaw, she followed the squaw till night, and then both of them lay down, having nothing over them but the heavens, and under them but the earth. Thus she travelled three days together, not knowing whether she was going, having nothing to eat or drink but water and green hurdle-berries. At last they came into Providence, where she was kindly entertained by several of that town. The Indian often said that I should never have her under twenty pounds. But now the Lord hath brought her in upon free cost, and given her to me the second time. The Lord make us a blessing indeed to others. Now have I seen that scripture also fulfilled, If any of thine be driven to the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and on them which hate thee, which persecuted thee. Deuteronomy 30, 4, 7. Thus hath the Lord brought me and mine out of that terrible pit, and hath sent us in the midst of tender-hearted and compassionate Christians. It is the desire of my soul that we may talk worthy of the mercies received, and which we are receiving. Our family being now gathered together, those of us that were living, and the South Church in Boston hired an house for us. Then we removed from Mr. Shepherd's house, those cordial friends, and went to Boston, where we continued about three-quarters of a year. Still the Lord went along with us and provided graciously for us. I thought it somewhat strange to set up housekeeping with the bare walls. But as Solomon says, money answers all things, and that we had through the benevolence of Christian friends, some in this town and some in that, and others, and some from England, that in a little time we might look, and see the house furnished with love. The Lord hath been exceeding good to us in our low estate, in that when he had neither house nor home, nor other necessaries, the Lord so moved the hearts of these and those towards us, that we wanted neither food nor raiment for ourselves or ours. There is a friend which sticketh closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24 And how many such friends have we found, and now amongst the living? And truly such a friend have we found him to be unto us, in whose house we live, Mr. James Whitcomb, a friend unto us near hand, and afar off. I can remember the time when I used to sleep quietly without workings in my thoughts, whole nights together, but now it is other ways to me, when all are fast about me, and no eye open, but his who ever waketh, my thoughts are upon things past, and upon the awful dispensation of the Lord towards us upon his wonderful power and might in carrying of us through so many difficulties in returning us in safety and suffering none to hurt us i remember in the night season how the other day i was in the midst of thousands of enemies and nothing but death before me it is then hard work to persuade myself that ever i should be satisfied with bread again now we are fed with the finest of the wheat and as i may say with honey out of the rock Instead of the husk, we have the fattened calf. The thoughts of these things, and the particulars of them, and of the love and goodness of God towards us, make it true of me. What David said of himself, I watered my couch with my tears. Psalm 6, 6. Oh, the wonderful power of God that mine eyes have seen, affording matter enough for my thoughts to run in, that when others are sleeping, mine eyes are weeping. 
I have seen the extreme vanity of this world. One hour I have been in health and wealthy, wanting nothing, but the next hour in sickness and wounds and death, having nothing but sorrow and affliction. Before I knew what affliction meant, I was ready sometimes to wish for it. When I lived in prosperity, having the comforts of the world about me, my relations by me, my heart cheerful, and taking little care for anything, and yet seeing many whom I preferred before myself under many trials and afflictions and sickness, weakness, poverty, losses, crosses, and cares of the world, I should sometimes be jealous, lest I should have my portion in this life, and that scripture would come to my mind, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Hebrews 12, 6. But now I see the Lord had his time to scourge and chasten me. The portion of some is to have their afflictions by drops. Now one drop, and then another. But the dregs of the cup, the wine of astonishment, like a sweeping rain that leaveth no food, did the Lord prepare to be my portion. Affliction I wanted, and affliction I had. Full measure, I thought, pressed down and running over. Yet I see when God calls a person to anything, and through never so many difficulties, yet he is fully able to carry them through and make them see, and say they have been gainers thereby. And I hope I can say, in some measure, as David did, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. The Lord hath showed me the vanity of these outward things, that they are the vanity of vanities, and vexation of spirit, that they are but a shadow, a blast, a bubble, and things of no continuance, that we must rely on God himself, and our whole dependence must be upon him. If trouble from smaller matters begin to arise in me, I have something at hand to check myself with, and say, Why am I troubled? It was but the other day that if I had had the world, I would have given it for my freedom, or to have been a servant to a Christian. I have learned to look beyond present and smaller troubles, and to be quieted under them, as Moses said, Stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus 14.13 Finish End of Part 3 of a Narrative of the Captivity and Restoration of Mrs. Mary Rawlinson by Mary Rawlinson Recording by Matthew Scott Superna, Moorhead, Minnesota M-A-T-T underscore M-O-N S-T-E-R 2-1 at hotmail.com End of a narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rawlinson by Mary Rawlinson Recording by Matthew Scott Supina, Moorhead, Minnesota M-A-T-T underscore M-O-N S-T-E-R 2-1 at hotmail.com